Welcome to Alternative Christian Voices. I'm a liberal millennial of a man bun. Um, I need to apologize in advance because my dogs are on one and I think we're probably going to hear a little bit of barking. They're not sorry. I'm really excited uh, to welcome Emma Percy today. Hi, Emma. Hello, nice to be with you. Um, Emma was on my, I, I'm going to embarrass her, she was on my original list. When I was originally talked into doing this, she was on my original list and I didn't ask because I assumed she'd ignore me. But Aww, she was actually I'm brilliant and answered straight away. Um, so Emma, why don't you tell us uh, a little bit of your story so people who, who, who don't know who you are can um, get a bit of an idea. Okay, I am uh, currently work as a chaplain in an Oxford college and uh, head up the welfare for the students there. And uh, I'm also currently the chair of Watch Women and the Church. Uh, I, which, which is? Which is a campaigning organisation within the Church of England for uh, women. And uh, I can tell you more about that as we go through. Yeah, sure. My background is as somebody who um, grew up uh, being taken to church by my dad. Um, so I'm a kind of cradle uh, Church of England. Um, and uh, while I was, um, you know, when I was in my teens, I began to uh, feel a sense that I would like to be able to be a preacher. I think I, I, I wanted to be able to share my faith and uh, started to hit up against the idea that that wasn't something that women did. Um, I, uh, when I was at uh, university, I um, started to sort of suggest to some of my Christian friends that I wanted to be a preacher and began to look at uh, the idea that I could become a deaconess in the Church of England and found that this was actually quite a, a divisive topic that uh, many of my Christian friends uh, spent a long time explaining to me that uh, uh, this wasn't suitable for a woman. Um, despite that, I also got other people encouraging me and I went forward uh, to be selected uh, as a deaconess uh, on a selection conference when I was 21 years old. Um, I'm a lot older than that now. I've uh, been like uh, <laughs> ordained for 30 years. Um, the church, uh, in between me being selected and going to theological college, the church moved from allowing women to be deaconesses to letting them be permanent deacons. And then at the end of my curacy in 1994, I was uh, one of the women ordained uh, in the first wave of women clergy being ordained in the Church of England what's the difference because this is new to me what's the difference between a, a deaconess and a permanent deacon well that's kind of an interesting question isn't it the, the the church of england along with other anglican churches revived the uh, ancient order of deaconesses uh, at the end of the 19th century and sort of in the early years there was a lot of debate about whether a deaconess was just a female deacon and uh, typical uh, Church of England, they spend a long time deciding not to answer the question. And so um, some of the bishops uh, ordained women as deaconesses uh, and others of them uh, licensed them as deaconesses and there was a bit of a dispute. But um, really sort of in the, by about the sort of, I think probably, uh, you know 1920s 1930s uh, they decided that uh, women deaconesses were not clergy 
they hadn't been ordained, uh, they were a lay order. So the difference was really that uh, a deaconess was uh, a lay person uh, who did many of the functions of a deacon um, and, uh, and that really continued until 1987 when women deaconesses could automatically become deacons and the order of deaconesses uh, stopped being used there were no longer deaconesses 87 is relatively recently and, and that's it all seems quite odd to me because i didn't grow up in church um and and i was born in in 92 so um i i um <laughs> I, I became sorry <laughs> i became a christian um in a church that, that i guess you would describe as like liberal anglo-catholic so the idea that you wouldn't have women priests was i didn't really discover that i you know i figured that there are some people that weren't okay with it but i didn't discover it was really a contentious issue until i arrived at college um and i um got in fights about it um i i didn't even i did i the idea that that might be a huge thing seems odd to me which i guess is good i guess is a sign of progress but yes i i think you know we have fantastically moved um a long way. Uh, I was just um, writing a piece um, yesterday about um, the Right Reverend Barbara Harris, who died a few weeks ago, who was the Bishop of Boston, uh, consecrated as such in 1989 as the first woman bishop in the Anglican Communion. And it was fascinating to look back on the fact that she was a bishop then, and the Church of England uh, had still not moved to a place where women could be priests. And I was at theological college at the time. And I think we, we really didn't know whether it would happen in our ministry. And when I first went forward to be a, a, a deaconess, and I think the DDO asked me whether I would consider being a priest, and I said that I hoped it might happen before I died. Uh, luckily, it happened <laughs> quite a long time before I died. But, um, you know, there was a time when I started where the, the opposition seemed so uh, intractable. And so, and so much of the church's thinking was that we had to, we couldn't move unless we move with everybody. That it seemed as if we would be made to wait for, forever. So... So you've been ordained for, for, for quite a long time, for like 30 odd um, years. So what would you say are the biggest differences, uh, the biggest changes uh, between a woman ordained when you were and a woman ordained now? What, what's the biggest or what are the biggest, most significant differences? I think the biggest difference and the most important thing is that uh, it, it's normal. You know, uh, we're no longer remarkable, and that's really important. Um, I think that when I uh, was first ordained, you know, you were constantly um, being the first woman that people had seen doing things, and people would sort of double check whether if you took their wedding, was it going to be a real one? And uh, and also lots of nice things. I, I was a, a parish priest in Sheffield in the. Um, uh, late 90s and you know and people would ring up the funeral directors and say can I have that nice uh, vicar of Dibley woman from Mill Houses <laughs> to do my Bert's funeral and uh, so I think that the normality is wonderful 
I think that many, many of the women who go forward into ministry today are able to just, most of the time, just get on with the job and nobody thinks it's weird or peculiar or odd that they're a woman and that's fantastic. We, we do still get, so my, my, my incumbent um, um, is, is a woman and, and, and I do occasionally hear people say to her, occasionally they ask me about the, the most common, some people, people, I do a lot of like uh, community work and work outside of church and um, so people don't necessarily know what a curate is, what the difference between a curate and a vicar is. Um, so I quite often get asked, um, do they still have that lady vicar? I said, well, we, we just call her the vicar actually. Um, <laughs> but it does still come up. Yes. It is, yes, you know, that's right. Lady vicar, woman vicar, um, women bishops. Um, it's interesting that we um, still get defined by our gender in a way that men don't. Well, I can't remember ever are. being called the man vicar, um, having come after Kathy. So I'm junior, junior to her. So um, I've never been described as um, a man vicar. No, I think that's right. I mean, it's still, you know, there is still a sense in which um, uh, we have a norm and we define the others who are, who are different from the norm, even if we do that in an affectionate or kind of um, respectful way. It still says something about the fact that um, uh, women, you know, are more normal, but they're not quite normal yet. <laughs> um, there's a, um, a friend of mine who, uh, I guess she's about your age. She was ordained in the first batch of uh, women priests. She was, so she was ordained deacon before there were women priests. And she told me something that, that um, I found very odd. She said, she said um, the first time she ever saw a woman in a dog collar was uh, herself in the mirror on the day she was ordained. Um, until that point, she'd never actually in person seen a woman in a dog collar. Yes. I think one of the strangest things for me was um, uh, quite a few years after I was ordained, um, I was uh, at a rather odd diocesan conference and uh, there were various tensions going around and for particular reasons I was asked if I would do an extra uh, Eucharist one day um, particularly uh, because they wanted to have a woman uh, preside at some point um, and uh, of the people who attended quite a few of them were women priests and some of them were quite tearful at the end and they said to me that they had never received communion from a woman before and so they were people who had been ordained when they were already in ministry uh, took services in their own churches so they often were the president but because of the way so often deanery and diocesan events used to uh, not have women presiding so that all those who didn't accept women could also join in it meant that often women didn't get that privilege of experiencing being ministered to by another woman that's a problematic for me for a few reasons but um one of them being as my friend says this quite a lot um that um the church of england is a reformed church and if we accept a reform then but but, but like so in my deanery i do a lot of cover because we're very um we're one of if not probably the poorest uh and least staff deanery in, in bristol um not that it's competition um and we have two priests. So there's a lot of, a lot of understaffed church and we have two priests. So yeah. I do quite a lot of cover and there's only one church that I 
haven't presided in yet and I won't preside in. Um, and it's because they're the only forward in faith one. I, I have no issue with them as such. We've worked together on other, on other projects, but it just doesn't feel right to me that, so I, I was trained by, by lots of women, including you. Um, and my trainee incumbent who taught me, who taught me in practice, everything I know about being a priest in terms of actual, mm. um, practice is a, is a woman. And if, 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 if she's not legitimate, if the person who trained me, if the people who trained me aren't legitimate priests, in what significant way could I possibly be? If Kathy can't preside at that altar, my incumbent, um, how can I? Yeah. Um, if she doesn't count, then surely I don't either. But I don't know what I'm trying to say here. But I... No, I think, I think what you're saying is very moving. And I think that one of the things that was incredibly important in the whole campaign for uh, the ordination of women as priests and later on of women as bishops uh, were the, the, you know, the male clergy who understood and who um, in their own ways uh, just witnessed to the, the, the problem of the church not taking women seriously. I think what's difficult um, in today's church is, you know, it is a small minority of people uh, from two extremes of the church, the conservative evangelical, the uh, um, traditionalist Anglo-Catholics who still uh, aren't able to accept the ministry of women. And it, it is hard. We, we have a church that has said that other than um, us all sort of moving together, we actually make provision for people that, who can't accept it. And has its strengths and its weaknesses. I mean, it's certainly um, good, and, and, and I suppose fundamental to the Church of England, to the Anglican Church in general, that we um, not just tolerate difference, but actually embrace it and coexist with it. Um, but I suppose this isn't a question I prepped you for; it's just one that's coming into my head. Sorry. Um, I, su I suppose you know. Do, do you do you think there's a line where we can't? Do you think there's a line where we can't? tolerate a difference anymore where it becomes too problematic? I think that it gets very problematic when we have um, power differentials. So I think that it's relatively easy, as you say, in a, in a deanery, uh, if you've got one church which uh, holds a different position and actually if people have the freedom of choice in a sense as to where they worship, I think it's very problematic when uh, it's uh, about the hierarchy, which is why I've been somebody who's been uh, quite outspoken about thinking that um, particularly diocesan bishops, but in some ways all bishops should be people who will ordain women, uh, because I think it's um, particularly problematic if um, you have a bishop who does not uh, think that all of their priests are providing valid sacraments for their congregations. I find that a very difficult position. Um, so uh, whereas I can accept that there are some congregations for whom this continues to be the way they want to be, I have much more difficulty at the notion that uh, within our hierarchy we should continue to have people who do not fully accept the ordination of women. 
I, I mean, I'm fairly cynical of um, I'm fairly cynical that the 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 majority of of church members in Ford and Faith churches um actually care. I strongly suspect they don't. Um, and I base that opinion on I, I did a placement with um, I did a placement. Uh, I, I I nearly said his name then. I'm not supposed to do that. I did a placement with an with an area dean, um, in Bristol, and the it was, it was a really big one of the, one of the biggest sort of Anglo Catholic churches in Bristol was Ford and Faith at the time. I think Resolution A. I'm not sure they're actually Ford and Faith. Um, um, and he had been tasked with so he was going to the initial meeting, and he'd been tasked with the area dean had been tasked with um trying to get them to drop the resolution, seeing if they'd be open to dropping the resolution. And I saw him that day, and he was really worried about it really really anxious obviously really stressed about the idea um and um i did he didn't take me to the meeting a two cents of a thing but he, i saw him the next day and he told me about it he said when he got to the meeting really really worried about it and he said um he said now we'd like to um discuss the the resolutions with you and the warden said oh yeah we can drop those now that was just the vicar um and it was the it was the previous vicar that had been there for sort of yeah. thirty odd years, so had been there when women priests came through. But the congregation, the majority of them, weren't really concerned. I think I think that certainly uh, there's um, anecdotal evidence and some research evidence for that in in quite a number of churches, and the the notion either that it's um, about the views of um, the clergy or the views of a very small number of people. And, and what uh, what research has shown is that where people are exposed to the ministry of women, then often they change their mind. So part of the thing that concerns me in the church at the moment are the push from uh, some of the groups who are opposed to the ordination of women to have more and more separate events. Um, and that's why I think it is better now that it, you're more likely at a diocesan event to see a woman uh, preside because then people start to see that actually it's not really that different. <laughs> I can remember the first time I remember going to the States uh, when I was um, uh, in my early 20s and, and, and going to the first time to a uh, communion service in a uh, a church with a woman priest and, and thinking this is going to be some great momentous event for me. And of course, as the service went on and the familiar words happened, I realized that I'd forgotten to notice that this was a woman priest because actually, quite rightly, I was just caught up in actually making my weekly Eucharist on a Sunday in this beautiful church. And it was, it was very important for me to realize that actually, you know, the earth didn't move you know it wasn't actually this fundamental event it was just uh, you know a well-led piece of liturgy and the sacrament i received was as it would be you know regardless of the gender of the priest but but that's the I mean, to me that's the aim of, of equality not just in Absolutely. feminism but in in everything the aim of equality yeah. is that nobody asks Nobody, yeah. no, nobody even acknowledges the the gender or the color or the or the class yeah. or whatever of, of of the president. They just, um, it's just not a, not something that comes up. But it, it yes. is odd to me that 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 uh, a day you remember, you like you you explicitly remember the first woman priest you saw presided. Because I don't, um, I yeah. have no idea. Um, and again, this is a, this is a, demonstrates the sort of a, a generation difference in the way things have moved. Um, yeah. I I was not aware that this was 
a contentious thing until I got to theology college to train to be ordained. Um, and that's good. And I, and I, and that's, that's a joy to me because I think for, um, those of us who, uh, were campaigning back in the, you know, late eighties, uh, sort of, you know, early nineties, um, you know, it was about, it was about breadth and inclusion in the church. And it was about actually, I think, you know, what, what's important to me is I think that, uh, lay women, uh, need to see themselves at the altar. And I think it's that when I was a parish priest, I was very fortunate in that I had, um, married to a priest and, and he was working in a non-parochial job so he was licensed to the parish and uh, there was a, a one stage I had a male curate one stage I had a female curate there were other clergy around and some readers and I love the fact that on a Sunday morning you know we would there, there would some weeks there'd be you know two women at the altar some weeks there'd be a woman and a man some weeks there'd be two men you know we, there was this lovely mix-up and I think that was just very valuable for people in the pews to see people who look like them and to hear the word of God, you know, in a voice that sounds like them. I think that's a fundamental thing and that's why we need diversity within our ministry. So we, we have touched on it a little bit, um, but there are people, uh, there are people that, that, um, that would say that, that women have equality now, that the patriarchy is over. Um, even even in the church, the people that would say we have women priests, we have women bishops. What what more do you want? I'd like to make it really clear. If it's not already, I'm not one of those people. <laughs> um, um, yeah. Uh, there are people that would say patriarchy isn't isn't an issue anymore. How do you respond to that? Um, I think that we've we've moved. You know, there are a number of different things in the church. So one is that we're still an organisation that does uh, uh, discriminate against women whatever we like to call it, that's one of the decisions that we have made in terms of the five guiding principles. We made and a so conscious women, decision to discriminate. Yeah, we make a conscious decision. So there will be places and times where now and again, as a woman, you will come up against that. So that, that, that exists. But also uh, the, the church is like many, many uh, historic universities, universities, sorry, historic organizations, so universities in my head, historic organizations whereby the, the cultural norm has so been shaped by years of male only uh, power, you know, um, male only hierarchies, that actually shifting the culture is one of the key things of challenging patriarchy. Uh, and that's, um, so one of the things that uh, I've been involved in over the years uh, has been trying to just get a decent maternity policy across the church. Uh, and actually, one of the things that we had to do initially was to move from the notion that actually women having children was a problem that the church had to somehow deal with to a notion and it's lovely we have at last after years just got a new national family friendly policies been produced and actually actually talks about how uh, you know the vocation to, to motherhood may actually be something positive <laughs> that enhances people's ministry um, so it's about it's about that sense of some very practical things that need to happen we're trying to look at issues around harassment bullying is that something that is gendered does the church need to think better about that for men as well as women 
but maybe it's because we're coming from a particular position that women are asking the question. And the other big thing, so there's that whole uh, series of things that most organisations are having to go through. Do we have to think differently because we have a more diverse um, group of people uh, in our leadership? The other thing, of course, is a bigger, bigger question uh, for the church, which is around uh, the language, the imagery that we use to talk about our faith, to talk about God, to talk about what it means to be a Christian. And if there's been a sort of normative thing about what a vicar looks like, there's been a very normative thing about uh, how we talk about God and how we talk about being a Christian and mainly drawn from very masculine imagery. I mean, the, the, um, what a vicar looks like, and I, um, in many ways, I'm very privileged. I'm a, I'm, I'm a white, I'm a white male. Um, but I don't fit, I don't fit the typical mold of a vicar, um, no. <laughs> which, which I don't like. To, I'll, you know, I'll agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's, it's it been to my advantage by and large in parish. So I'm, I'm not really complaining about it, but I certainly have encountered that idea that, that, um, I get asked, are you real? Like a lot. <laughs> which is a really surreal thing to be asked because, mm. um, mm. you know, on, on what level do, uh, do you mean? Am I real? How would I know if I wasn't? Um, but, but that, the idea that we have a mold and that mold is to be, and I'm not trying to attack the, um, middle-class middle-aged yeah. white men because that some of the, you know, they're brilliant. And I know lots of outstanding. Well, in fact, mm. I owe a lot to a, a slightly more than middle-class, but, um, quite wealthy, um, middle-aged white man who, who was my first priest um but there is a mold of kind of middle-aged white middle-class guy that is you know the church of england priest which i don't think that that mold is helping well i, I don't I, it is slowly breaking but i think it's, it's damaging not not just not just minority groups and not just people who don't fit that mold but actually the church as a whole that mold is hurting us i think that um Diversity is something that we've come to understand uh, across many walks of life uh, is necessary and important. And I think the church um, has woken up to this to a great extent, but actually the movement from thinking that it's good to have a more diverse workforce to actually how you get that and what that looks like and how you make people feel welcome is, is a much uh, longer and harder um, task. And I mean, I do, you know, I rejoice, you know, I love the fact that Rose Hudson Wilkinson was, uh, you know, consecrated a bishop recently, and it was great to be in the cathedral and just see the cathedral, you know, with uh, lots of black women in it. And, uh, and, and that's really important because actually she has, you know, she's she suddenly makes, a whole, you know, as Barbara Harris, you know, this the first woman bishop in the Anglican Communion was an African American woman, tiny little African American woman, and you know, and that actually just was saying something very different about who's valued and who matters, because who we have in our hierarchy sends out messages. Yeah, it does certainly. Yeah, it gives an impression when you see, and, and what I think most clergy realise pretty quickly after being ordained that. Um, whether you want to or not, whether you think it's right or not, everybody you meet will judge the entire church on you. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, we, that's yeah. not fair, clergy, but it is what happens. Well, clergy are, that's part of the calling, isn't it? It's to be a visible 
a visible sign of, of what it is to live as a Christian. You have made a, a public statement in a sense, a recognizable statement that you are going to be somebody who lives out the Christian life. And, uh, and that, um, you, know, we're, you know, there's a visibility that we have to live up to. So, so changing the subject a little bit, well, quite a lot, actually. <laughs> um, um, pretty much every time I preach somewhere uh, or any time I have a, a speaking engagement and, and even a few times sort of people who listen to this show, um, uh, people have noticed that I, alter I alternate gender pronouns for God. Um, mm -hmm. And I started doing that a couple of years ago uh, intentionally, but it's now, it's just sort of habit now. I don't really have to think about it. And I started doing it because I realized that always using male pronouns for God, I was, uh, I was implying, well, I was teaching because I am in a sort of position where, where I, you know, people, I do teach people whether I mean to or not. Um, I was teaching people that God is a man, uh, which I don't think, I don't think that. I think that it's pretty clear in the Bible that God presents uh, herself as both male and female and neither at different times for different, for different reasons. Um, and for the most part, in fact, overwhelmingly, um, that's been really positive and people have responded really, particularly women have responded really positively mm. to that. I think because I am a man, I, I think some mm. women have heard a woman use female gender pronouns for God. But, um, but, but I have found that some people find that very, very difficult. The idea of yeah. the idea of, um, God, you know, a, a feminine God, and you're actually the first person to introduce me to the idea of a feminine God. Um, in your, I, 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 I'm trying not to nerd out. I didn't even, I haven't even mentioned your books. Um, um, you know, the first, the first time I was introduced to the idea of God the Mother was it was in my first year of training in a lecture you gave uh, on feminine imagery for God. So I thought, since I've got you, um, I'd ask you about it. Why do you think? I turn that self-righteous monologue into a question. Why <laughs> do you think that people struggle with the idea of God as a as a woman? I think it's lots of issues, isn't it, about using the other. I think that um, one's habit and, uh, you know, we, we, we have inherited a tradition uh, and a language uh, of generations where um, the default is to use um, male pronouns for God. Um, the second, I think, is quite an interesting question, which is, um, and I can think even my, even when I started trying to uh, play with using uh, feminine language about God, there was almost a part of me that felt it was disrespectful. Um, was I, you know, bringing in something kind of, uh, you know, you know, something into in some kind of sex into God language, which was, so I think there's a whole interesting issue. What, and, and, and that was interesting for me to think about why, why did I think it was more respectful to talk to God in male language than female? And I think that's a lot to do with how we view the feminine. What, what, um, would tell me a little bit more about, about that. Why would it be? What was your conclusion? I think my conclusion was that um, it, it was just, you know, we were just used to seeing that the feminine is the lesser, really. You know, that actually... Um, it was it's to do with patriarchy it's to do with actually what we value really and we tend to value the things that we term in, in the more masculine ways of being and behaving in society as as somehow uh, superior uh, to the feminine and I think that was I, I think it is changing but I think that was certainly uh, very much part of the way that I was brought up 
Um, and I think that I had to struggle with how I read the Bible um, because we, we all read the Bible in translation. So we're very used to uh, particular uh, ways things have been translated in very gendered terms. Uh, and I think it was, it was giving myself, you know, I grew up in, a, uh, in quite an evangelical uh, background. And so, you know, there was always this uh, fear of, of, of not uh, treating the Bible right. And so I think it was quite helpful for me to spend time uh, reading around a lot of ideas, uh, thinking about how things are translated, understanding that different languages use kind of different kind of gendered ways of talking. Um, and, but I think particularly the important thing for me is to understand that all of our God language is metaphorical and that an awful lot of the Old Testament was trying to say, don't make God like you. <laughs> you know, God is bigger. <laughs> and and, and that, that playfulness, I think, that you find in the Old Testament of all those amazing different ways that we are to imagine and think about God. I think that was quite freeing for me. So, something I read, um, I want to say it was Tony Campola, but I, I can't really remember, um, was... He, he was saying whenever Jesus, whenever Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he always says, and, and he says that when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he's talking about God. Um, he always says the kingdom of God is like. He never says the yeah. kingdom of God is. So he, say, he says God is, um, God is like a father. He's not a father, but, but he's like a, a father. He says that um, God is, uh, the kingdom of God is um, uh uh, like a mustard is not it's, it's not that but but you know it's a it's an analogy with you you're trying to find words to describe something that we're not capable of understanding yes. so why i i suppose what why would it be problematic well i i guess i guess what that comes down to is uh, answering the question i didn't quite get to asking um if if you're working under the if you're not viewing the terms you're using for god as as analogies if you're saying that yeah if you're taking them very literally, then, then they, they, they matter more and you can't deviate from them, I suppose. Um, I think that's right. And I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think we, I think understanding that all our language is, 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 is imagery and, and searching and metaphors and analogy is so important because um, lots of us can have actually um, quite problematic uh, issues around, uh, you know, maybe, our father, our mother, our, our um, you know, other aspects of life. And if, if we limit our imagery of God in a very fixed way, so if we say, you know, uh, you know God is a father, and actually our, our understanding of father is actually quite a negative thing, then um, that can be problematic for men and for women. Um, and and understanding why it mattered, you know, that actually in the New Testament, so much of the father-son language is not about kind of, you know, uh, sort of male chromosomes or, or, or anything like that. Um, it's about actually inheritance. It's about what it meant in those days, you know, for the, the father to take on the son's name, to inherit that, that kind of familial link. If we understand that, then we can actually play with different ways to get those ideas across that actually might speak to, uh, to women, to people who haven't got fathers, to, to people in different circumstances. 
I'm aware that I'm very odd in my background in that I was um, I was unusual, particularly in the 1970s, for being uh, brought up by my father. So my father did all of the kinds of things that uh, are usually done by a mother. You know, he, you know, he was the head of heart. You know, he was. We, I was a single parent household, so he did the, you know, the washing, the ironing, the cooking, and he was really good at the washing and the ironing and cooking. And he was absolutely appalling at the. Uh, uh, mending the shelf, um, any kind of DIY. We lived in a very, very ramshackle existence. But it meant that from quite young, my concept about gender norms were were rather skewed. You you already you weren't coming into it with that idea that this is what a father is, this is what a mother is. Yes. So in some ways, I had quite a hard time in actually beginning to use uh, maternal language for God, um, because my mother had um, had. Uh, moved out of the family home when I was quite young and although I had uh, some kind of relationship with her it was actually a rather distant relationship so it was uh, I had to work through when I started thinking about maternal imagery for God I had to work through my own um, issues in a sense with um, with my own mother and of course for me actually it became much more powerful uh, using maternal imagery around God after I'd become a mother myself and actually seeing motherhood from a very different perspective. I, I, I was going to avoid asking you about it because that's not why I asked you to talk about, but um, you did write a book on it. So you, tell me about that. <laughs> why what, becoming a mother affected your view of God? I think, um, Almost every um, parent I know who's a Christian has told me something to that effect. Yes. I mean, I think that um, uh, becoming a mother for, uh, becoming a parent for anyone is a, is obviously a profound experience and it's a profound experience of both um, wonder and awe <laughs> uh, and also uh, kind of um, uh, trauma and panic, I think, you know, <laughs> all rolled in together. <laughs> yeah, I have all of those experiences about getting a new dog. I don't think I can handle. Okay. <laughs> I think that, um, I think that particularly for women, um, there is something about motherhood that's uh, about the very strange and complex experience of um, being so physically part of the uh, creation experience of a new being. That very strange notion of actually the both uh, holding um, the growing child within your own body and all of the complexity of that and then the, the 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 bringing to birth and 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 feeding a child and I, I was fascinated uh, at the biblical imagery around you know that quite often the imagery of of of, of pregnancy of laboring of breastfeeding uh, are found uh, in the bible as um both either images of god or images of the way that we kind of can respond and care and I think that if you, if something is, um, for many people sort of, you know, getting married and then having kids feels quite a normal thing because of my own particular family background and the fact that my husband who, who grew up in a very happy family was actually adopted into it, um, meant that, um, and also just to add into the weirdness of life, uh, when we first got married, I was, um, uh, diagnosed with cancer so had cancer treatment um, uh, over that period so we, we were told not to start having a family for a for a while so it was a you know a few years into 
it was four years after we were married that the doctor said we could try and have children. And I guess it meant I overthought a lot. <laughs> so, so the fact that I then went on eventually to, to write a, 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 to do a PhD thesis and to write some books looking at both uh, the experience of being a priest and the experience of being a mother and how for me they uh, interconnected and, 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 and had things to say to each other is probably because I'd had to overthink both of those <laughs> and, and delay both of those at various times I due to external circumstances. Of, um, I imagine there's always a degree of overthinking when you write a book. I, Absolutely. I'm, I'm not a book writing type. Uh, but I, I was tracking it back a little bit. I had the, the exact opposite experience to you with um, sort of female imagery for God. I, I don't have a brilliant relationship with my father. I, I, I do know him and we, you know, we are, you know, he is alive, so but, uh, I'm not going to go into it, but, um, and, and I know a lot of people say stuff like, like, you know, cause God, the father can, if you've got a bad relationship with fathers, God, the father can restore that. And that, that's definitely true. And that's definitely uh, happened a lot with me. And actually I think I owe a lot of the more positive sides of my relationship, my dad to that, that restoration. I think, well, actually, this man doesn't need to be perfect anymore. This man can be broken now because I have. So, so I don't want to diminish um, God the Father, but I don't have a very positive sort of subconscious mm. view of Father. Um, mm. So I started, I started using sort of mothering uh, um, or, or a feminine imagery for God and, and, and referring to God the Mother more, um, largely for my, for my community, for my congregation. Um, Mm. largely to help other people but what i found is it massively freed up it took a just this huge pressure off my prayer life and, and i found so like mm. publicly i've tried quite hard to use both equally um because i think to to stop talking about god the father is an overswing um absolutely yeah um so publicly i tried very hard to be equal but privately i find more and more i more and more i'm praying to god the mother and less and less to god the father because it doesn't come with that baggage that father yeah. does for me but I appreciate that that works the exact opposite way for, you know, lots of people. And I think that the, the important thing, as you say, about making sure that um, in our public worship, we mix up the imagery is, is giving people permission to, to play with different ideas. And for most of us throughout our life, and, you know, uh, you know, I'm in my uh, mid fifties now, um, our prayer life will shift and change through different seasons and the uh you know for various reasons i've been through some very difficult times recently and i've um you know i've found that uh the psalms have become very central to my prayer life at the minute and in a way that they 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 weren't at other times and 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 and, and that's where i you know and i stay in a particular place and and i think i think enabling people to see that the way we talk to God, the bits of scripture that feed us, the images that feed us will, will sort of inevitably shift and change as we uh, encounter different experiences in life. And, um, you know, my faith is, uh, is as strong now as it was when I was a sort of, 16 year old and first began to think about uh, having some kind of ministry but it's also expressed very differently because um, I'm a very different person in a different place and and I think one of the great joys for me 
of being a Christian is that sense that there is always more to understand and explore about God and there are always new insights and and because it's a relationship it does grow and develop and there are there are you know there are still songs that I sing that I learned in Sunday school but there are also <laughs> new insights and new ideas I've, I've, and, I've and new caught my seasons. wife singing songs she learned in Sunday school and they make me very grateful that I didn't grow up in church <laughs> Um, um, I, I need to wind up, but I don't know exactly what the demographic, gender demographic of, of, of um, my audience is. Um, I probably reasonable to assume it's about half and half. Um, but there'll be certainly be quite a lot of um, women listening. I've got quite a, a reasonable following of Ordnance because I interviewed Humphrey Southern and he attracts he attracts Ordnance. Yeah. Um, so, so I, just uh, to finish off, thinking of that that audience, the sort of women listening and. Um, you know, people uh, cl uh, uh, training clergy listening and people in the selection process listening. Is there anything you would like to say to them as someone who's who's um, a veteran of of? <laughs> See how carefully I picked my words there. You did. You did. Um, <laughs> I think in terms of the kind of things that we've talked about today, I think for uh, the women who are listening, I think I would want to encourage them to be confident that their lived experience is a good place to do their theology and that their understanding of, uh, you know, they are made in the image of God. So therefore they have something from their lived experience to help us shape our ideas about God. And I think I'd say to the men, it's good too to play <laughs> so you know if you're very comfortable with your image of god and your image of god feels very like you try doing something a bit different to make you uncomfortable because we do need to have all of us that sense that we are made in the image of god and who we are has something to say about who god is but we're also human and god is divine so we can't know it all and we need the imagery and the uh, diversity of others to actually stretch us to think differently. Okay, brilliant. Emma, thank you for coming on. Um, I That's really appreciate right. it. Um, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, you know the drill. We do this at the end of every episode. Um, follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. We're on Instagram now. I, I still don't really know how to work it. Um, I got on Instagram about three interviews ago. And I still don't really know how to work. <laughs> it's what my children do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I'm young enough that I should know, but I don't. Um, uh, like to share the pages, retweets. Um, I, I haven't got any money to pay Facebook. So it's really important that if you listen to an episode and you enjoy it, um, please go back and hit the share button or the retweet button. I, um, I interview people that I think are really worth, li worth listening to. So if you agree, uh, go and hit share. Thanks for listening. Thank you.